franchising is the most misunderstood and most overlooked form of entrepreneurship. We're here to educate you and help you find the entrepreneur within. Franchising is not all about the French fries. We find that individuals who are exploring business ownership tend to have a lot of misperceptions and misunderstandings about the franchise industry. So what we want to do is help prospective business owners make confident and educated decisions before moving forward or not moving forward with the business. Welcome to Unpredicted Entrepreneur. Welcome to episode 24 of Unpredicted Entrepreneur. I'm Roxanne Rapsky, and this is my colleague, Sarah Wasco. We created this podcast to bring you information and education about entrepreneurship and all things franchising. So today we have a guest that is going to share with us the legal side of owning a business. So if you own a business where you have to have employees, Brandy is going to educate us with some things we should know. We're going to call this, excuse me, Employment 101. So, Brandy, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you do now, and we'll have some questions for you. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Brandy McKay. I'm a partner at the law firm of Brown Fox. We're located both in Dallas and in Collin County, and my focus is primarily on employment law. And so I counsel both businesses and employees about employment law. So on the business side, I like to help new business owners understand what their legal requirements are for hiring employees, terminating employees, and going through all those steps. And then with employees, I counsel them on reviewing their employment agreements, separation agreements, compensation equity agreements. That's a lot. So when yeah. you and I spoke and kind of did like a pre a prep for this, the first thing that you talked about was figure out the kind of employees that you're hiring, 1099 or, or W-2. So you kind of want to walk us through that a little sure. bit? Sure. So oftentimes new business owners really want to jump in. They want to get their workforce involved. And so the simplest method usually is I'm going to hire somebody as an independent contractor, which is commonly known as a 1099, um, versus setting up payroll, taking care of taxes, unemployment, all those things seem very complicated. Yeah. They're really not. Um, and the problem is there are several requirements about whether or not somebody can truly be an independent contractor or whether or not they're an employee. And so employers find themselves in hot water oftentimes because they misclassify their workers. They will not pay them taxes or withhold their taxes and, and do it that way. So I do a lot of counseling for new businesses about how do you determine whether or not I'm hiring an independent contractor or an employee? An independent contractor is really somebody who's providing that same services to multiple businesses. And I think the easiest example is a janitor um, who provides commercial cleaning services. So they might go to building A one day, building B, they set their hours, they set their rates. There's usually a uh, entity for that janitorial mm -hmm. services yeah. that's providing services. Employees, on the other hand, are people that we hire day in, day out. You set the times. You provide the policies involved for them coming and going. You tell them what the rate is typically going to be. There can be some negotiation, but you're controlling all facets of mm -hmm. their employment, and that's what makes them an employee. And you also, if they're an employee, you're providing their you know, their computer, their supplies, all those kinds of things, correct? And Absolutely. then an independent contractor, they basically are their own entity. And so if it's an office environment, for example, they're going to use their own laptop and um, buy their own supplies and so forth. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And then they can, to your point, kind of set their own hours. You're not 
um, providing a, a schedule for them to clock in per se and clock out, and you're not requiring them to be working for you at, from 8 a.m. to you know noon even. Even if they're part-time, you're still requiring those set hours, right, that's, if they're an employee? That's exactly it. You okay. really need to look at it as control. If you as the employer are controlling the way they do their, their work, when they do it, how they do it, then it's an employee situation. Yeah, that makes sense. And talk to us a little bit about, okay, so now let's say you have hired your first employee or two. Talk, let's talk about the difference between salaried and hourly and maybe some ways you could get into trouble there too. Sure. So um, salary versus hourly is controlled by the federal government under the Department of Labor rules. And so to be a salaried employee, you have to meet certain requirements to be what's called exempt from overtime. And there's really three classifications. It's somebody who's an executive. Mm -hmm. um, it's somebody that's in a management position, meaning they're controlling other employees. They have hiring and firing discretion. They also control certain monetary functions of the company. There's also a third um, exemption, which would be your, um, uh, so we had administrative, uh, management, and then executive. And so administrative is somebody who is basically handling a department. So okay. think of it as your controller. Um, that would be somebody who's administrative. All of those types of individuals, as long as they're meeting a minimum threshold for their salary requirements, which changes over the years, um, you have to meet that minimum requirement of what you're paying them, and they have to have those job duties that mm -hmm. meet it. In that circumstances, they can be a salaried employee. Um, oftentimes, though, employers will just say, well, you're just going to work for me for 40 hours a week, and I'm going to pay you, you know, a set rate of $500 a week. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the government doesn't agree to that. Okay. Because what happens is oftentimes that 40 hours will sneak up, and as soon as they go over that 40-hour uh, requirement, then they're entitled to overtime, which is time and a half. Uh -huh. um, so, so that gets a little complicated for uh, new employers to really understand, am I correctly hiring people? And I see this often, the issue comes up with salespersons. Um, people will come in to do sales jobs, and there's a whole set of requirements about whether or not you're an inside salesperson, outside salesperson, whether your commissions cover. So it can get pretty complicated. So my advice always is, is when you set up your new business, get some employment law advice just to understand whether or not you're correctly paying your employees properly because you don't want to run into an audit with the IRS, the Department of Labor, or the Texas Workforce Commission or whatever state entity that you're operating in. Well, and I think when we were talking on the phone, you even <clears throat> mentioned that an employer could, let's not use the 40-hour-a-week example. Let's say you hire somebody for 20 hours a week and you're going to pay them X amount of dollars. And next thing you know, they're working 25 hours, then 30 hours. And that's kind of where employees get disgruntled and might even complain to the labor department. And, right. 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 So audits are what happens when those entities come in to look through your books and records to see how many hours your employees are working, all of that. Almost always those audits are triggered by a disgruntled employee, somebody that's unhappy. They've left because the, the environment that they're working in is not what they thought it was going to be. Yeah. So you can pretty much tell when you're going to end up with that audit based on, on that disgruntled employee. <laughs> and the best advice for those audits is, is get help because they are extremely uh, taxing um, and there's a lot of legal ease to, to wade through. I'm sure. I, I, nobody likes being audited. I was going to say, no. I can't imagine getting that notification from the IRS that you're going to be audited. Yeah. So what does somebody do? I know you said get help. So they reach out to an employment attorney and provide the documentation to that attorney and get that advice that way. 
So usually what will happen, IRS audits are a little different. And in those circumstances, you really want to hire, you know, a tax attorney that specializes in IRS audits. But on the employment side, when it's the Department of Labor or the state entity in here, it would be Texas Workforce Commission. Yeah, you want to reach out to legal counsel because they will walk you through that process. And there's different meetings that you'll have with that investigator that you want your counsel present to make sure that you're one, you're cooperating appropriately and handing over the books and records because you don't want it to be drawn out for two, three years. And if you're really not cooperating, what you'll find is instead of going back one year, you'll be looking at the three-year um, oh, mark. So Yeah, that's how you get your little hand slapped, yeah. right, for not cooperating? Cooperation's key. And you want to avoid penalties as well. So cooperation will help avoid some of those penalties. So what are the first steps? Let's say I just opened my business mm-hmm. and I'm hiring my first few employees. What are the first steps I first steps I need to take? Well, I think first you need to figure out how many employees you're hiring Mm -hmm. um, because the number of employees you hire will really determine what the next steps are going to be. Do you... Do you need to get some tax advice um, about how you're going to be setting up your... Uh, your payroll services? Do you want to do it through where you're writing a a check? Do you want to go through a payroll services? There's a lot of small business payroll services that are great that will provide you with those resources. But when that happens, you need to collect information from each of those employees. And that includes doing your citizenship. You know, are they uh, permitted to work in the United States? Going through all that. And you want to go through all those appropriate requirements before you actually hire somebody to make sure that, that you're hiring somebody who's legally entitled to work in the United States. Um, And then you want to get them set up on a payroll system so that you make sure that you are paying them appropriately, like we just talked about. Right, yeah. So let's say you've got your employees and your business is rocking and rolling and then something happens with an employee. And maybe you need to discipline them or maybe you need to terminate them. Share with us a little bit about that process, because I've always understood that you have to document all of their um, warnings, I guess, and all of that. So um, I don't have employees, so I really haven't had to experience that. So I would love, and I'm sure many of our listeners that might be thinking about business ownership, this is something that goes through their mind, too. So give us kind of an overview about how that would work. So you heard the term at-will employee, and and what that means is you're hiring somebody um, to work for you, and you as the employer have the right to hire them or terminate them for any reason or no reason, so long as it's not a discriminatory reason. And that's really key, because I can hire Jane Doe to come work for me and decide that we're not a good fit. She's just not really, you know, doing the job I want her to do, and I can terminate her. I don't have to give her a reason. I don't have to write her up. I don't have to document in any way whatsoever. But the issue is if you do end up terminating somebody and there's a question whether or not they're going to find that it's discriminatory, you want to make sure you have documentation. Or if you think they're going to file for unemployment with the state, you also want to document the reasons why you're, why you're terminating them. In Texas, if you terminate somebody for cause, meaning that they engaged in misconduct, um, they failed to, to take direction, they were insubordinate, if you document that and then they apply for unemployment, you as the employer can defeat their claim for unemployment if you have it well documented and the investigator finds that they were terminated for cause. So that's why you'd want to document it there. Okay. The other one is if somebody's going to claim that they were being terminated for a discriminatory reason based on their gender, um, color, ethnicity, culture, all of those types of things, you want to prove that, no, we terminated Sally because she failed to show up for work on time the entire time she was employed. So you want to have that documentation in place that you can defeat a claim later on. 
But I hear oftentimes um, from employers, don't I have to give three strikes? Don't I have to give a verbal, a written, and then a final written? You don't. There is no requirement that you do that. Now, you can set up a policy that that's how you want to engage in your discipline, but there is no formal requirement that you do it that way. Interesting. Yeah, I kind of thought that you did have to really give them warnings and some of those things before actually letting them go. So Well, and I worked for... I was in management for, you know, a large corporation and, um, you know, our HR department had us do that. You know, they wanted everything very well documented. So we had to, you know, have those conversations and put the information in the file. And I guess, you know, sometimes I think the bigger you are and the more people might think that your pockets are deeper. So that might be more of a temptation to come after you for any reason. Sure. I mean, most employers are looking at how to avoid risk. Right, they don't yeah. want to be sued. They don't want to have to pay additional fees. So you want to do it the safe way. So I yeah. do advise my employer clients to document it. Yeah. You know, if you have an employee that's not showing up on time, make sure you've got written documentation. If they're violating policies, make sure that you have that in writing, so that if they do come back and sue you for wrongful termination, you can justify the termination. Well, and that's a great segue into we talked about. We ended this way, but I'm going to skip to that and then come back because at the end of our conversation. You said the one thing that you wish people knew that they come to you for a lot is feeling that they have been wrongfully terminated, and you have to really kind of walk them through that. So um, kind of say what you said to me just because, you know, your boss is whatever. So, yeah. Sure. So I get calls all the time from people that say, look, I just got terminated from my job, and I think that I was wrongfully terminated. (laughs) And I generally ask them, like, tell me a little bit about what happened. And they'll say, I've been working for Mark for, you know, three years. And he, you know, yells at me, he screams at me. He's just a jerk. And and I'm like, oh, that sounds awful. Was he a jerk just to you? And if he was a jerk to you, why do you think he was being a jerk to you? And what I'm listening for, are, are there any signs that there was a motivation on Mark's part because of discriminatory reasons, gender, ethnicity, um, age, those types of things? And if I don't hear it, then I'll ask, What's, is Mark just an equal opportunity jerk? Um, and oftentimes I'm like, oh, yeah, Mark is just awful to everybody. <laughs> Unfortunately, the law does not protect any of us from working for bullies um, or just jerks. Uh, there's no law that prohibits that. Um, it's unfortunate. There's corporate policies that will you know, have anti-harassment, anti-bullying, those types of things. But those are all privately, you know, corporate-governed types of yeah. rules. Very interesting. So that kind of leads my thought process next to, you know, you talk about corporate policies and so forth. What is the best way for employers to convey those policies within the their company? Because you talked about somebody not, um, you know, adhering mm-hmm. to those policies and being let go. So um, should every company have an employee handbook? And if so, what's the way they go about creating that? So we all heard about the handbook. Mm-hmm. The handbook is typically the employer's, you know, guidebook, policy manual. And what I see oftentimes is people will go pull something off the internet and put it in there. And you don't want to do that. And there's a lot of reasons why you don't. A handbook is not one size fits all. In fact, handbooks should really be drafted towards the type of business you have, the size of business you have. And I'll give you a, a really an example I see all the time is We've heard of the Family Medical Leave Act. Mm -hmm. Well, that only applies to businesses that have 50 or more employees. And oftentimes, small businesses will throw in there, you're entitled to FMLA leave if Mm. you meet these requirements. Your 
they're not actually entitled to it under the federal law. But if you put it in your handbook and you're offering that as a benefit, you've just now given the employees a benefit and you still have to comply with all the federal requirements for FMLA leave. So it's really important that you not just kind of draft this handbook that is a one-size-fits-all. But it's an important thing to, to have because going back to the example we had for wrongful termination, mm-hmm. um, you really want to have a place where your employees know that they can go if there are discrimination, if there is harassment, that they understand what that means and that it's not tolerated, and that if it happens, they are to report it. Um, because oftentimes companies will find themselves on the other end of a lawsuit for harassment, and I'll have the employer tell me, we never knew it was going on because no, nobody told us. Mm. And so you want to be able to have that, that guidebook as well. Yeah, I can definitely see where you need to have all of that in writing so that expectations are set mm-hmm. so that then if there are issues, you can go back and say, you were required to read the handbook. You signed that you read the handbook mm-hmm. and um, XYZ has happened that is um, against our policies. Absolutely. Well, and talking about pulling things off the internet and and policies and procedures, there's also employment contracts, right? Mm-hmm. That yep. can be pulled off the internet. Um, but kind of to your point earlier is it should be custom to your business and your company. So why don't you give us some of your feedback with that? Sure. I will oftentimes, especially young companies, uh, new employers will come to me and say, well, I've already I pulled off some employment agreements that I found. I have them in place. And I really counsel new employers, especially don't don't use forms. Um, one, you don't know if it's state specific, um, and it, you don't know if it's going to be enforceable for your purposes. And so, especially with employment agreements, you know, we talked about what at will is. Well, if you start offering an employment agreement, you've changed it from an at will status, and you've started defining what that employment looks like. And so, you really don't want to just have an employment agreement which doesn't fit the appropriate mm-hmm. scenario. Oftentimes, too, I'll have um, new employers come in and they'll ask me about setting up consulting agreements because they need to have somebody come in and provide some individualized services. Well, they'll draft these consulting agreements based on things they see on the Internet that are completely unenforceable. So they might spend money paying a consultant and not actually getting what they, they thought they were getting. So I always counsel people just having a spend the money on, on the upfront, having a lawyer take a look at it and make sure that it's enforceable for your purposes versus getting on the back end where you're being sued or needing to sue and you don't have an agreement. It, well, and it's a lot more expensive that way, right? On the Absolutely. back end, a lot more expensive? Probably five times as much. Okay. So spend the money up front, mm-hmm. do it right is the message here. And actually, Sarah and I talk about that a lot because you know we've made some of those mistakes. Every young business is trying to bootstrap and yep. we try to do everything ourselves, yep. um, be it find contracts on the internet or set up your own website, or do your own bookkeeping. Um, There's just things that we shouldn't do, right? Right. Focus on your highest and best use in your business, and then leave the rest to the professionals. Anything else that you think we didn't talk about that you would want to bring up to somebody starting a new business? Oh my gosh, there's probably tons of things that we didn't touch on. Um, High level though, I feel like what you really, really want to emphasize to new employers is that um, you can't take it all on. I mean, like to your point, you yeah. need to hire, hire somebody that can help you do that. Uh, manage the employees, um, handle your bookkeeping records, handle your payroll, things like that. And there's so many great services that are not 
super expensive that you can utilize to help yeah. you do that. Even if it's a bookkeeper or a CPA, it doesn't actually have to be a payroll company, but have somebody that has that skill set do it for you. Absolutely. Yeah. It took me a long time to learn that. And I'm really glad we're talking about it on the legal side because I think some of that gets overlooked. People, new business owners are drinking from a fire hose. There's so much to do and that gets... They don't understand it, as most wouldn't. Um, they're not attorneys themselves. They're trying to get this business started, and then they run into a roadblock, and then it becomes so much more expensive. So thank you so much for bringing that to the attention of our listeners so that they can prepare on the front end rather than having to fix a problem on the back end. Um, Brandy, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you and um, – explore getting your advice and getting some direction with getting their business started, how would they reach you? The best way to reach me would probably be by email, which is brandy, B-R-A-N-D-I, at brownfoxlaw.com, or by phone. My direct number is 972-707-1861, and I'm, I'm easily accessible by either phone or email. I'll vouch for it. The last two times I've called her, she's answered her phone immediately. <laughs> Wonderful. That doesn't always happen. So yep. um, really good to know. We greatly appreciate it. I'm sure you're so busy. So thank you so much thank for you. taking time out of your busy schedule to come and give us a high-level overview of employment law. I know that your um, information today will be really useful for a lot of our listeners. Um, thank you all so much for joining us today on Unpredicted Entrepreneur. I am Sarah Watt. Uh, last name is W-A-S-K-O-W. This is my colleague, Roxanne Rapsky, R-A-P-S-K-E. Please um, link up with us on LinkedIn. We're very active there. Feel free to reach out to us. You can find our contact information on frannet.com. And you can also find more of these podcasts wherever you listen to your podcast, as well as our YouTube channel, which is FranNet of Dallas, Fort Worth, and Oklahoma. Thanks again for joining us and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.